You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we bow now before Your Word and ask that we would hear this morning from You. It is only in the pages of revealed Scripture that we can, with any confidence, expect to hear You speak to us. And so we pray that You would today, that You would sanctify this truth to our hearts and our hearts by this truth, that when You speak to us, we would obey, that we would listen, that we would be comforted, and that we would be encouraged as well. We ask these things in Your blessing on our time spent in the study of Your Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out and hit the movie theaters, I went and saw it. And of course, prior to that, there was the months and months of hype and build-up about this movie that was coming out, produced by a popular Hollywood movie actor, and the fact that he was Orthodox Catholic and with all of the trappings that go with that sort of Orthodox Catholicism. And so I watched the reports come out before anybody had even seen the movie, and they, of course, panned the film because they said it was anti-Semitic which it wasn't, and then they panned the film because they said it was too violent, because you know how people in Hollywood are about violence. They don't like to upset their uh, delicate sensibilities. It was no more violent than any other fair that comes out of Hollywood that they produce without any qualms whatsoever. It felt more violent, though. I will confess that. And the reason that it felt more violent, even though I think it was less violent than most Hollywood movies, it felt more violent because... It was violence and aggression perpetrated against primarily one individual over a protracted period of time in an unrelenting fashion. It was against one individual over a protracted period of time in an unrelenting fashion. Now, all of Mel Gibson's orthodox, traditional, Vatican II style of Latin-speaking Catholicism aside, because some of that did make it into the film, but laying that aside, the Passion of the Christ was the most accurate portrayal that I've ever seen done on film of the brutality, the cruelty, the indecency, the shame, the humiliation of what crucifixion entailed, even though there were at times, from what I have read, that I think they went soft on what crucifixion was really like. But it was as accurate as I've ever seen in film. And I remember watching that in the theater. I wanted to see it on the big screen. I remember watching that in the theater and getting to the point where He breathed his last on the cross and said, it is finished, and gave up his spirit and died. And I remember at that moment breathing a sigh of relief myself. I felt at that time, I just had this feeling like, finally it's done. It's done. You feel like you've reached the the end of a long, drawn-out saga, and you're just glad to see it over with. I kind of sense that or have the same sort of feeling getting to the end of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Whew, I'm glad that's done. I think you probably had the same feeling, maybe because it took us five weeks to go through it. But I had that feeling, not because we were doing some heavy lifting, theologically speaking, a lot of stuff in those verses that were really difficult to cover and difficult to understand, and, and uh, had to keep it in balance, to keep it in its proper context, and understand what Paul was saying and what he was not saying. But I, I breathe that sigh of relief because I feel like you get to the end of verse 8, And for all of that time, as you're reading down verses 4, 5, 6, 7, you know where you're headed. 
you know where you're headed. And then you get to the cross at the end of verse 8. And verse 8 does have a period at the end of it. And you get to the end of verse 8, and, you, and I realize as we get to the end of verse 8, begin verse 9, that the end of verse 8 is the end of humiliation. The crucifixion and the death on the cross, that was the last humiliation, the last indignity, the last indecency that our Savior ever did or ever will suffer at the hands of men. It's over. He will suffer no more indignity. He did not after that, and He never will. After the death on the cross, when He breathed His last, His friends lovingly removed His body from the cross, lovingly washed it and prepared it for burial, wrapped it in grave clothes, and laid Him in the tomb of a, laid Him in the tomb of a rich man. He, he, when He breathed His last, He suffered no more indignity, no more humiliation, no more shame, no more pain, no more indecency, nothing else at the hands of men. And He never ever will suffer another humiliation at the hands of men. That was it. It's over with. Then we get to verse 9, and all of a sudden things change, don't they? You get to the end of verse 9, and you realize, oh, we've reached the, the lowest of the low and the end of it. The end of the humiliation. So now we're starting the second half of this this ancient Christian hymn. We're only going to do verses 9 to 11 in one week. We did the first part over a protracted period of time. We're going to cover 9 through 11 today. This is the second half. Now, in the first half of the hymn, we get the humiliation of Christ. That series of stepping down. Now we get to verse 9, and 9 through 11 is the exaltation of Christ. The ultimate humiliation, and now we're going to look at the ultimate exaltation. So I want your eyes to be on the text at verse 9, and I want you to look at the words as I give you sort of three points or three Elements of this exaltation around which we'll sort of build our, hang our thoughts this morning. Verse 9, for this reason also, God has highly exalted him. That is the position of his exaltation. Second is the priority of his exaltation. He has given him the name which is above every name. And then verse 10 and 11 is the, the uh, purpose of his exaltation. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The place or position of His exaltation, the priority of His exaltation, and then the purpose of it. There's a reason that God did it. Now before we begin in, get into the details of the verse, I just want you to notice in general three sort of general characteristics about verses 9 to 11. First of all, I want you to notice that the tone of those verses has changed. The tone of the whole passage has changed. When you start in verse Five, and you talk about him being in the position of God, being equal with God, and then stepping down in regard, not regarding his equality with God as a thing to be held on to at all costs. And then Christ stepped down further when he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And then he stepped down when he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And you get to verse 8 at the end of it and you realize, I'm as low as I can go. It is as dark as it can get. We've gone down, 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 down through the passage and you've got as low as you can possibly go. And then it's all of a sudden like in verse 9, somebody turns on the light and lifts our gaze upward because it says God has highly exalted Him. So we've gone down and now we're jumping and we're going straight up. So the tone has changed. It's gone from being dark and somber and sort of descending in humiliation to all of a sudden being triumphant and exuberant and joyful and excited, victorious. So 
the whole tone has changed. Second, I want you to notice that there's no mention of the resurrection per se. Did you notice that? There's no mention in the text of the resurrection. He talks about the death of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, but Paul doesn't mention the resurrection. Why is that? Is it because he didn't believe in the resurrection? Is it because it didn't happen? Is it because he doubted it? Is it because he forgot? I don't think it was. He mentions it in chapter 3, verse 10. He mentions it in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So it's not that he's leaving it out here because he forgot about it. I think it's an intentional omission, and I'll tell you why. In the exaltation of Christ, or sorry, in the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ vindicates his sonship. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. So the resurrection is a vindication of his Messiahship, his sonship. The exaltation of Christ is a vindication of his rulership, his sovereignty. So when you read about the resurrection, what the resurrection communicates to us is a vindication of who Christ is as the eternal Son of God. But when you talk about the exaltation of Christ, what is communicated is that Jesus Christ reigns, that He rules. So in the resurrection, God says He lives and forevermore. And in the exaltation of Christ, God says He reigns and forevermore. Now the emphasis in Philippians chapter 2 is on the rulership, the authority, the sovereignty, the majesty of the Son of God. And since that is the case, the Apostle Paul simply goes from the crucifixion of Christ straight to His exaltation. And of course, implied in that and assumed in that is the resurrection because there is no exaltation if He's still in the grave. There's nobody to exalt. There's nobody to lift up. There's nobody to magnify. There's nobody to praise. There's nothing praiseworthy. His body is still in the tomb. So it's really assumed. Third sort of general quality about these verses that I want you to acknowledge or notice is that when we went from verses 6 through 8, it was a series of steps down. Did you notice that? A series of steps. How many steps here? One. Just one. Straight up from the lowest of low to the highest of high. No, he got exalted here and then he got promoted to this and then he acquired that. It's just from the lowest of low to the highest of high. One step. Now with that in your mind, Let's look at the details of it, and let's look, first of all, at the position of his exaltation. Keep your eyes on the text, and read along with me, beginning in verse 9. For this reason also, now stop right there, because that's a good place to stop. For this reason also, there's something that Paul is saying there. He's giving to us the reason that God has exalted his Son. What is it? For this reason, you've got to look back to the previous verses, and what is it about? Because he humbled himself. It's not because God had nothing better to do. It is because the Son condescended, took upon Himself human flesh, was made in appearance as a man, humbled Himself to the point of death, even the most degrading and humiliating death on a cross, that for this reason God has highly exalted Him. Because He stepped down voluntarily. Not that He was forced to do this. Not that He was coerced into doing this. Not that He was guilted into doing this. But He did this Himself to Himself for us in in looking at our interest instead of His own, at the interest of others. For this reason, God has highly exalted Him. Now this illustrates a truth that Jesus stated in Luke chapter 14, verse 11. That everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everybody who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Do you know that God absolutely hates pride? Now there's not a single person here in front of me, nor is there a single person in front of you, that is not affected by the sin of pride. It is in the heart of every single human being. And God hates it. And He promises that He will wage war on it 
and that if you exalt yourself, he will humble you. And he promises that if you lift yourself up, he will abase you. He will defame you. He will take you down. You know why that is? It's because pride in our heart and pride in, pride in our heart and in our life, whenever we lift ourselves up against God, whenever we exalt ourselves, what we do is we wage war on his throne and his rule and his, and his, his reign and his authority and his power and his position. And we say in our hearts, I will be first and I will have my way and he will not have his. And it's a war on the throne of God. And God doesn't take that lightly. And he promises to abase us. I love the fact that God delights in humbling the proud. But I also delight in the fact that God delights in exalting the humble. But here's the catch. In Scripture, the promise, God will exalt you, is not given to those who are humbled. It's given to those who humble themselves. Do you know the difference between being humbled and humbling yourself? Do you know what the difference is? One, you do, quite willingly. The other, you don't do. Somebody else does it to you. In fact, Jesus made that statement. Everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He made that at the end of telling a little story and giving an object lesson to the disciples. In Luke chapter 14, I think it's 14 or verse 11, or 11 verse 14, one of the two. It's right in that neighborhood. It's the Gospel of Luke. Go home and read it. Right in that neighborhood, Jesus tells the story. He says to the disciples, if you're invited to a feast and you, you get there and you show up and there's a bunch of places open at the table, don't take the place at the head of the table because then the master of the table will come to you and say, <clears throat> sorry, you're seated in the wrong place. You need to go down lower to a lower position down here where people like you sit because this is for somebody that's well more special than you. And if you do that, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled in the eyes of people. Instead, he says, when you walk into the banquet room, don't sit at the highest position of the table, the place of honor. Instead, choose the lowest place. Humble yourself. And it may be then that the, that the master of the banquet will come in and say, you shouldn't be sitting down here. You need to sit at the higher position. Because everybody who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. But it doesn't say that he who is humbled will then be exalted. Why? Because when God humbles you, when God humbles you, there's no promise to being lifted up at any proper time. So Jesus says, you humble yourself, you do it, and God will exalt you at the proper time. And you never at any point say, okay, I've humbled myself, now where's my exaltation? I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be lifted up. No, the promise is that when you do that, God will exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time. Okay, back to the text. Verse 9, for this reason also God, stop right there, that's a good place to stop too. For this reason, God, who did the exalting? You think this is a small detail, but it's a significant detail. It's a significant detail because we notice that in the exaltation of Christ, He did not exalt Himself, did He? Who exalted Him? God the Father did. God the Father bestowed on the Son this exalted position. That is the work of God who exalts those who humble themselves. And if you exalt yourself, God will bring you down. That's a promise. And if you humble yourself at the proper time, God will be the one who exalts you. And at no point in humbling ourselves do we ever turn around and exalt ourselves and say, well, I have humbled myself now for a week, and a week has gone by. Now it's time for me to exalt myself to the position that I deserve. Do you ever do that? You and I are to never, ever worry about being exalted. You never get to the point where you say, I have humbled myself and now I need to be exalted. Because you know what the next question is? You think you need to be exalted? 
And you haven't really humbled yourself, have you? Is that humility? See, friends, Jesus, when He went to the cross, did not go to the cross because He knew that God was going to exalt Him. That was not His motive for going. That's what Paul has been giving to us. His motive for going was because He considered the interests of others as more important than Himself. And so He laid aside the glory, He laid aside the prerogatives of deity, and He humbled Himself for us. And His motive was not glory. His motive was not to be exalted. But because He did this voluntarily, God highly exalted him. If Jesus went to the cross simply because he knew he was going to be exalted, it wouldn't have been humility at all. It would have been self-seeking, self-aggrandizement. So he went and he humbled himself knowing that God would exalt him at the proper time. And it says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. God has highly exalted his son. Paul takes the word exalted and he does what Paul likes to do in the New Testament put a little prefix on the beginning of the word that uh, Hooper is the prefix, and it means super or above. He's above exalted him. He has exalted him above everything. Now the promise to you and I is that if we humble ourselves, in due time, at the proper time, God will exalt us and He will lift us up. That's a promise. And I bank on that and I believe that. But God does not exalt us to the same way, in the same degree, or to the same position that Christ got. He is super exalted. He is exalted Above. He is above all things. Now everything is underneath of Him, and that is His position. He now has a position above all people, all principalities, all powers, and all things. Because He humbled Himself and went as low as He could go, God has lifted Him up as high as He can be and has exalted Him super above everything else. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says, God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Ephesians 4, verse 10, He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. The superposition of exaltation. You realize that that's what the apostles preached as part of the Gospel? in the early days of the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father and received the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you see and hear from His position as exalted Lord. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God is exalted to the right hand of glory to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He's exalted. That's what they preached. Not just a crucified Christ, but a crucified and risen Christ and a crucified, risen, ascended, coronated, and exalted Christ so that they preached to Jesus who sat at the right hand of the Father and had all rule and all authority so that now everything is under Him. All dominions, all principalities, all powers, all kings, all nations, all authorities, all contingencies, all what we would consider to be chance happening, the weather, every star, every galaxy, every system in the universe, every individual who has ever lived, every bit of authority, even down to the smallest detail, it all serves His purpose because He has been exalted above all things. And there is nothing that is outside of His dominion. And what Paul wants us to see is that He has this position now of rulership and absolute sovereignty that He is the Lord of the entire universe. That is His place. That is His position. One step from the cross of humiliation to this exalted position of exaltation. Now look at not only the position of His exaltation, 
but the priority of it. He has been given a name which is above every name. He's been given a name which is above every name. In the name of Christ, and names in ancient times were significant. Not like us today. I named my kids four names that I didn't care what they meant. I didn't care if they reflected character or looks or anything like that. If one was born, uh, one of them was born purple. We didn't, I didn't name him anything that meant purple. Um, I, we just didn't have, my, the names that we choose today aren't significant at all. It wasn't that way in the Bible days. It wasn't that way in ancient times. In ancient times, they would name a child, and the name oftentimes was intended to be a reflection of the character, the essence, the person, the personality, who they were, the type of person that they were, like Esau, like Jacob, like Abraham. Names carried significance. Like with Jesus, the angel told Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. So you name him Jesus. And even the name of his humiliation was an indication of his office and his function and his role and what he would accomplish and what God had sent him to earth to do. And you're not going to name him Bob or Levi or Jack or or Randy or anything like that. You, You name him Jesus because his name means something. It is the same thing with the name that Jesus has been given. It indicates something significant. It, it indicates character and essence. Now, what is the name that he has been given? Is it the name Jesus? Some people say that, that the name that he has been given in his exaltation is the name Jesus. So that the name Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth. I don't think it's the name Jesus that Paul is talking about. He holds us in a little bit of suspense till you get down to the end of verse 11. What is the name? It is when every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name of his exaltation. Not Jesus, but Lord. It's that name that indicates his position. It is that name that indicates his person, his character, his essence. God has given him the name Curios, his own name. God has given to Jesus Christ the name Lord, which didn't just mean a nice dignitary or somebody of exalted status. It means ruler, sovereign, master. It speaks of somebody who has absolute power and absolute authority. Somebody who sits on an absolute throne and rules and reigns and that forever. He's been given that name. And that is a name that is above every name. That's not an extra step in exaltation. That's an explanation of what this exaltation involves or what was what, what the nature of it was. He has been given a name which is above Every name, that is the priority. There's no name named in heaven or on earth that compares to that name of Lord because He is to have first place in all things. Now let me let you in on a little mystery here. It seems to be indicated by the text that Jesus, through His humiliation and His exaltation and God giving Him this name, that He acquired something that He didn't have before the Incarnation. Doesn't this seem to suggest that? that he got something as a result of his work of redemption and his humiliation and the cross, that he was given a, I don't know, position or a power or a glory that he didn't have before as a reward. It sort of seems to feel that that's what Paul is saying. But I don't want you to walk away thinking that what God did in exalting his son was simply to reverse the incarnation process. It's not that he was here and he stepped down and God put him right back up equal again. It is very genuine to say that Jesus has something today that He did not have before the Incarnation, doesn't He? Today, He is and always will be a Redeemer because He has accomplished redemption. 
Today, He is a high priest who intercedes for His people. Today, He is a glorified God-man and an exalted and glorified human being at the right hand of the Father and will exist as such for all of eternity. Today, we honor Him and more tribute is given to Him because we recognize who He is, we recognize the position that He has been given, and even the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So that in order to honor the Father, you must honor the Son. So does He have something today that He didn't have before? A lot more honor, recognition, tribute, position, status, responsibility. Not to suggest that He's any more God than He was before He came here. Not to suggest that He has any more glory now than He had with the Father before the world was. And not to suggest that He's any more perfect today than He was before He came to earth. None of that. But there is a very real sense in which He is honored and praised and attributed more as a result of accomplishing redemption for his people and for a people for his own possession today than he had before he came here. And so God has exalted him to this exalted position so that, as Paul says in Colossians, he may have the preeminence. He may have first place in all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, that he has inherited a better name than the angels. We read that in Hebrews chapter 1. To which one of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and your throne, O God, is forever and ever? To no angel did God ever say that. But to his son he has, because he has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name which is above every name. That's the priority of his exaltation. Third, I want you to notice the purpose of the exaltation, beginning in verse 10. So that, that's a purpose clause, for this reason, for for this purpose, in order that this may happen, so that at the name of Jesus, now it's not the name Jesus, but the name which Jesus possesses, so that at the name that Jesus possesses, which is Lord, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and of those who are on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The purpose of God exalting His Son is so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He is Lord. Every tongue will utter the name that God has given Him, which is above every name. And every knee will bow before Him. And every tongue will make confession that He is who He is, that He has done what He has done, and that He sits in the position that He sits in. Everybody will acknowledge that. Now, in my Bible, verse 10 has all capital letters for a phrase. Your Bible probably has some way of indicating that the Apostle Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And I'm not going to have you turn there because I want your eyes to be on Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 to 25, where the Apostle Paul quotes from. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. And I want you to look at it and I want you to recognize the similarities between the text. Now listen. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. And here it is, that to me, now who's saying this in Isaiah? God. Thus says the Lord, God. And then he says, to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and this is Isaiah speaking of God, Men will come to Him and all who were angry at Him will be put to shame. 
In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Now, friends, that is as strong of an argument for the deity of Christ as you could possibly hope to find anywhere in the New Testament. Paul quotes from Isaiah. You go back and you flip back to Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? The Lord says, the Lord God says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Every tongue will confess. And then Paul quotes that passage and he applies it to Jesus and says to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every tongue will make that confession. Now you and I are left with one possible conclusion. That Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament of whom Isaiah spoke and who spoke through Isaiah. And Isaiah says that all who are angry at him will come before him and be put to shame. What does that mean? We'll get to that in just a second. Now when Paul says, to him every knee will bow, who is he speaking of? Everybody. Everybody. Every knee will bow. That's why he says every. He didn't mean every. He wouldn't say every. Not a few. Not just the redeemed. But every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess. Not just a few and not just those of the redeemed. But every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, of those who are in heaven, referring to holy angels and redeemed humanity, of those who are on the earth, everybody who is alive today, and of those under the earth, an idiom for unredeemed humanity and the place of, of, of fallen spirits or fallen angels. Both angelic and human hosts, everyone, every knee and every tongue will someday bow and confess before Him that He is Lord. Of those in heaven, earth, under the earth, all who have ever lived. Now there is a sense in which this happens even today, but in a very limited and small sense. You and I gladly bow the knee to Christ. We gladly confess Him as Lord. We gladly proclaim His truth. We gladly swear allegiance and confess uh, confess before Him, bow before Him, recognize Him for who He is. But at the same time, we understand that doesn't happen on a wide scale, does it? Everybody doesn't do that. Those in hell have not. Those on earth, not all of those on earth have. But there is a sense in which even though it happens now, we do that with full knowledge and full expectation that one day that is going to be a universal worship service. Now, does that mean that all people will be saved? Anybody asking that? Because if you just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord then you'll be saved. What happens if everybody confesses that He is Lord? Well, by the time this happens, everybody will have already either received or forfeited eternal life, depending on what they did with Christ. This is not a text that has anything to do with a universal salvation. Friends, this is not a confession of reconciliation and adoration. This is a confession of subjugation. A confession of subjugation. Some people on that day will bow before Him gladly. Others will bow before Him madly. Some people will bow before Him in adoration. Others in subjugation. People will bow before Him and they will bend the knee and they will confess with their mouth that which they do so unwillingly with hardened and unredeemed hearts. But they will not be able to resist His majesty, to resist the truth, or to resist His power and their knees will bend, and their mouths will confess. Now, is there not something in you that longs to see that happen right now? There has to be something in the heart of every believer that says, right now I want to see His truth vindicated, and His person revealed, and and Him glorified and praised. Right now I want to see all of humanity bend the knee and confess that He is Lord. 
Just wrap up the whole sin project. Wrap up all of this mess. Just bring it to an end. Let us all bow and get on with eternity. There's something in me that wants to say that. There's something in me that longs for that. I'll be honest with you. I'm looking forward to that day. You know why I'm looking forward to that day? Because Caiaphas will be there. That high priest who masterminded the whole crucifixion. He will be there. And there was a time when Jesus stood before him and stood trial. The tables are going to be turned in a very massive way in the near future. When the tables will be turned, it will be Caiaphas on trial before Jesus. And Caiaphas will bow the knee. And Caiaphas will confess. And how about Annas, the high priest, who said to the apostles, you preach or teach no more in his name. And they beat him and they wanted to kill the apostles, but Gamaliel stopped him from doing that. Annas will be there. And Annas is going to bow the knee and he's going to confess. And Pontius Pilate is going to be there. And Herod the Great, who tried to kill him as a child, will stand before him and bow the knee and make confession with the mouth. And those two thieves, one of them will bow in adoration, the other one in subjugation. One of them going to eternal life, one of them going to eternal punishment. And the people who nailed the nails will be there and they will bow before him. And the people who walked by that road and mocked him publicly and openly, they will bow before him. And just as he was held up to an open shame in the front of all of those people along that road on that cross so that everybody coming in and out of Jerusalem could see him and spit at him and mock him and hurl insults at him, this will be a public profession, a public acknowledgement, and a public bowing and confession with the knee and with the mouth. And all of those will be there, all of humanity. Hitler will bow the knee. Osama bin Laden will bow the knee. Saddam Hussein will bow the knee. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, all the village atheists of our day who make millions slandering the church and hating Christians, they will all bow the knee. Charlie Darwin will bow the knee before Jesus Christ. Man, there's something in me that just longs to see that happen. Longs to see that happen. And justice will be done and His name will be vindicated and His truth will be exalted and He will be lifted up and men will bow the knee and acknowledge you are who you are. You did what you did. My resistance is futile. You are Lord. For some of us it will precede heaven. For others it will precede hell. Your aunt, your uncle, your spouse, your child, your unsaved co-worker, your unsaved boss, your unsaved friends, your unsaved relatives, your unsaved neighbors, they'll all be there and they'll all bow. As much as they may hate Christ today, they will recognize how futile their resistance was when they bow before Him. All people will bow. And listen, you will bow too. If you think that acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ and obeying Him today is going to cost you too much, and you resist Him, He will let you have your will, and He will let you have your way for a period of time. But your knee will bow. The only question is, will it bow in adoration, or will it bow in subjugation? Will it bow willingly, or will it bow because you cannot resist His power before He cast you into the hell which was prepared for the devil and his angels? It's the only question. But every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there's two, impl- <clears throat> there's two implications that we draw from this truth about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. First one has to do with our relationship to His Lordship. Our relationship to His Lordship. Have you ever heard Christians use the phrase or express terminology like this where they say, well, I trusted Jesus as my Savior when I was four, and then I lived in utter rebellion, sinful flesh, and, and utter uh, depravity and, and just indulged my flesh in every sinful desire that presented itself to me for 30 years. Then about two years ago, I finally made him Lord. You ever hear people say, talk like that? I've used that terminology. It's utterly unbiblical and utterly wrong. You know why? Because Scripture never speaks anywhere about us making Jesus Christ Lord. He is Lord. You don't make him that. You don't reject him as that and still own him as your Savior. 
You don't have that option. You either submit to Him and obey Him and bow before Him and take His salvation as He offers it in grace, or you reject Him as a person. But you don't say, well, I'll take salvation and I'll leave the whole lordship issue up for another day. Now, sometimes when people people say that, what they mean is, I became a Christian, I floundered around for a little while, I couldn't get my feet spiritually because I wasn't connected with a local church, and so I was really struggling in my sanctification, but eventually the Lord sort of got my attention and I sort of got things turned around. I can understand that scenario because that was my experience. It happened to me. But I know when I was saved and it wasn't when I finally got things turned around. There was a sanctification process for a period of time and then it sort of took off once I got my spiritual feet under me. But somebody who says, I trusted Christ when I was four because I prayed the prayer, or I checked the box, or I walked the aisle, or did whatever I did, then I lived sinful, rebellious life for 20 years and I finally made Him Lord of my life. No, what you finally did was probably get born again and get saved. It wasn't that you finally made Him Lord. He is Lord. There was just a point where He finally redeemed you and He saved you and you acknowledged it and you confessed Him. Now, in all of this, am I suggesting that we are saved by our obedience to Him? No. That's works righteousness. We're not saved by obedience. We're saved by grace through faith. But we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and Savior. And we acknowledge Him as such. And any profession of faith that thinks there is salvation, while they reject His right to rule over them, is a worthless profession of faith. If it is not accompanied by obedience, then that type of profession of faith cannot save you at all. The individual who says in their heart, I will not have this man to reign over me is not saved. That's the bottom line. The individual who says in their heart, I will not have this man to rule over me is not saved. Salvation comes to Christ and says, You are my Savior. You are my Lord. I trust in you for who you are and what you have done. He is called Lord in Scripture 474 times. You look at the preaching of the early church. You know what they preached? He's Lord. Trust in Him. He'll save you because He's Lord. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll find the word Savior used of Christ twice. You'll you'll see that He's called Lord 92 times. What did they emphasize? This one whom you crucified is risen again and is exalted to the right hand of God. Trust in Him. He is the exalted Lord, worthy of your homage, worthy of your obedience, worthy of your adoration, and He demands it. And if you will not embrace Him, you will suffer because He will punish you for your sins. So will you acknowledge Him today as Lord, or will you wait a while? So the first implication has to do with our relationship to His Lordship. Have you trusted Christ, not just to save you from your sins, but do you come before Him in obedient submission because He rules you and He reigns you because He is Lord? The second implication has to do with our confidence in His Lordship. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm going to eventually get to heaven? You know why I have confidence in my salvation? You know why I know that my salvation is secure? Because He is risen and He sits at the right hand of the Father. It is because He is exalted that I have confidence that He will bring me through to the end, that He will complete the work that He begun in me. He will finish it. He will sanctify me and present me faultless before His throne with exceeding joy because He sits on that throne. And because He is exalted to the highest place, My confidence and assurance comes from that fact. In fact, that's what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 7 says, Therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. It was fitting for us, 
to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Exalted above the heavens. Did you catch that? He is able to save completely those who come to Him, who draw near to God through Him, because He is the exalted Lord. And if He is not the exalted Lord, I can have no confidence in His ability to save me. But if I'm believing in the One who sits at God's right hand, who is exalted above the heavens, who's been given a name above every name, if that's true, then my salvation is a done deal. It is secure. And there's no power in heaven, there's no power in hell, and there's no power on earth that can strip that from me. None. Because it doesn't rest with me. It rests with the exalted One who has been given a name that is above every name. And before Him all men will bow. And so I have confidence. And I have assurance. I was listening this, this last weekend to the preaching of Alistair Rebeg. He's a Scotsman. And Alistair Rebeg said something that I loved. I thought it was profound. I'd never heard it before, but I realized it's true. And it was sort of a pithy way of saying it. He said, those who are in heaven may be happier than you, but they are no more secure than you. That's beautiful. That's true. They may be happier than you, but they're no more secure in you than you. Now that's not to suggest that being in heaven we're still insecure. That wasn't the point. The point was that those who are in heaven are no more secure in their salvation than you are. If you have believed on Christ, you are just as secure as those who are already in the presence of God. Maybe not as happy, but just as secure. Just as secure. Because He is exalted, I have utter confidence that He is able to save to the uttermost those who will come to God through Him and draw near to God through Him. Because we trust in not just somebody who says, I'll wash away your sins, but we trust in somebody who is exalted above the heavens, who has atoned for our sin, and He rules and reigns over all, and He will not lose those who belong to Him. In order for my eternity to be in jeopardy, Jesus Christ would have to be booted off of His throne be robbed of His rule and His reign, and be demoted from His position. But as long as He is sovereign, I am saved. But if He is no longer sovereign, and I, I can't testify to you about my own salvation, but as long as He rules and reigns, I am secure. So you know what the exaltation of Christ means for us? This, Just this, one statement, and with this I close. The exaltation of Christ means that those who believe are secure and that those who make-believe are not. Those who believe are secure, and those who make-believe are not, because all men will bow. Let's bow before Him now, shall we? Father, You are so good, so gracious, so glorious. We thank You that You have exalted the Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank You for what You have accomplished in salvation and in redemption. We thank You that You rule, that You reign, that You live forevermore. Our confidence and our hope is in You, and we gladly bow our knees, our hearts, and our heads before You to acknowledge who You are. You are the rightful Lord of all things, having purchased again all those who will believe in You for eternal life. You have purchased heaven for us. You have purchased every spiritual blessing. You have purchased the right to rule and reign and resurrect creation, and You have purchased our eternity with You. We thank You that all that rests in Christ and that He is able to save forever those who will come to Him in faith. We do this today with glad, joyful, and exuberant hearts. We thank You for that victory. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.